Y'all know how that is. You're already at Sunday morning and you're trying to get out the door plus a trip and all that fun stuff. So anyway, if y'all would pray for us this week, um, pray for specifically for Open Doors. We um, have been going to some of these locations for um, <clears throat> the daycare centers for over 15 years now. And um, out of the five that Laura and I always do and that we have when we lived in Louisiana would sometimes do year-round once a month, um, out of those five that we have consistently done, um, we're only allowed into two of them because of COVID protocols. Um, and what it really comes down to is even the Christian daycares, which receive government funding, are afraid that um, the health department will show up when we're there and will shut down the daycare. Even though they have guidelines, a lot of them which we, we have had agreed to follow, wearing masks while you're teaching a Bible lesson, which makes a lot of sense. But anyway, um, staying so many feet away from the children, having everything outdoors, and because we're not allowed inside. And so anyway, um, obviously the inside thing is not fully law because some of the daycares are allowing us and allowing us inside. But anyway, um, but two of the daycare centers have um, asked us to come. Um, others we had set up um, have canceled. But um, so because of that, though, we're going back into Natchez into a couple of neighborhoods, some of those neighborhoods the last 30 years. Um, most summers have done Bible clubs um, in fact, a couple years ago, we were in one of those neighborhoods, and a man came up and said, I want my little boy to come. Do y'all still sing? And he started listing all these songs. He said, when I was a little boy, you people came here, and my kids came. Uh, well, I came as a little kid. And um, he said, I want my kid to hear this too. And so anyway, so pray for us with open doors, because in those places, we found out too late on Friday that we were not allowed back into some of the other centers. And so um, we have not been able to talk to the managers, so there still is that question. You know, we're going to walk up to the office with masks on and everything else, looking all COVID protocol in line so that hopefully they'll let us walk around in the open air talking to people and sharing the gospel. So there are still authorities in those neighborhoods. So if y'all will pray for open doors and um, anyway... We're just going to go from apartment building to apartment building. There's a lot of government housing there in Natchez, and we're going to go from apartment to apartment until somebody lets us in. Last night, I was thinking about Jesus as he sent his disciples out, and he told them, he said, go into whatsoever city you find one worthy that will receive you, enter there. If somebody won't receive you, wipe the dust off and go to the next place. And so that's what we've actually done this week and to the point of moving our hotels from one town to another town in order to be able to accommodate those clubs. So pray for us this week um, for open doors, open hearts to the gospel, and pray for those two daycare centers that are allowing us in for God's protection on them. Um, I highly respect those women at those daycare centers that are not afraid of the health department. And um, they're completely within legal guidelines. And um, pray for them as they're opening their doors for the gospel to be brought to their kids. This morning, we're looking at John 17. 
Jesus' prayer, I call this the Lord's Prayer, because literally this is the Lord's Prayer. What we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer, we would be better called the model prayer. Um, Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. When, when you say the words, the Lord's Prayer, what words come to your mind? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We think of that prayer. But here in John 17, we have the, literally the prayer of our Lord as he is leaving, has left the upper room with his disciples. They've walked along the way. He's given them instructions, preparing them for persecution. That's the last two lessons that we have looked at here. And now, as he's walking on along the way, he begins to pray. And it says in verse 17, sorry, chapter 17, verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, notice his posture. He's walking along the road. He lifts his eyes up, looking up to heaven, looking up to the Father, and he begins to pray. Now, this prayer naturally divides itself into three parts. The first part is uh, verses uh, 1 through 5. Jesus prays for himself. Starting at verse 6, he begins to pray for his disciples. He refers to them as his own in the prayer. And then, um, starting at verse 20, <clears throat> he begins to pray for his church. So, those who would be led to him by the witness of this group. So, let's begin by looking at this first part, as Jesus prayed for himself. <clears throat> and as we look at this, each one of these sections seems to have one primary concern with Jesus' prayer. And there's a lot you could be distracted by this week. I listened to um, a hyper-Calvinist. I didn't know the preacher was a hyper-Calvinist. And in the middle of this lesson, he said, I am a hyper-Calvinist. And then he starts laying it down what this past chapter means. And what he taught was how this prayer teaches Calvinism. And I thought it was really sad because when I got through, I mean, he had had some good material in his message. But when he got through, I'm like, that's not even what Jesus was praying about. Um, how did we walk away? And that was the only lesson we got out of that prayer. So I don't want us to get distracted um, by things. I want us to look and see if we can find what is what I believe is the pri Jesus' primary concern with each one of these sections of his prayer. First of all, as he prays for himself, look what he says. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. Father, the hour has come. If you remember when we started studying John in John chapter 2, when Jesus was at um, Cana of Galilee and his mother came to him and said that they need wine, what are you going to do about it, basically? And he said, woman, mine hour is not yet come. And then throughout the Gospel of John and in the other Gospels, we see this phrase, mine hour is not yet come. In the Gospel of John, if you remember, um, there was one point where the, um, it refers to them as the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious elites wanted to arrest Jesus, and it said John in his commentary of the, the story said that they, they could not arrest him even though they wanted to because his hour was not yet come. Jesus is talking about his crucifixion here. Father, the hour has come, the time, what all of this has been leading up to is come glorify thy son. Now, why did he want to be glorified? There was a reason 
You and I often, when we want to be put forward, when we want to be lifted up, um, we want it for our own glory. I mean, if we were all honest, we would admit, even in church things, sometimes we will serve in order for somebody to notice us, right? Uh, we just, we want somebody to appreciate us. We want somebody to value us. And so we do things for that purpose. Jesus is wanting to be glorified so that he can glorify the Father. Now, I think specifically he's talking about the crucifixion here. That's his context. He knows where he's going. He knows what's next. He's been trying to warn the disciples of it. He left off just the last thing he told them was to be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But right before that, he said, I'm going away. You're going to be scattered. You're not going to stick by me. Um, but be of good cheer. I've overcome. And now he turns his direction to the Father. And his primary concern in this first section as he prays for himself is for the Father to be glorified. Glorification is his primary concern with this first part. He wants his Father to be glorified. He's willing to go to the cross because he wants his Father glorified. Verse 2, as thou hast given him, meaning the Son, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, let's pause here for a moment because he uses this phrase multiple times. He says, to as many as thou hast given him. To as many as thou hast given him. First of all, I want to talk about what he is not, um, what he's not saying. There are two sides of salvation. The first side is God's side of salvation. It is God's plan. Salvation was devised in the heart of God. It was his plan. Redemption was his plan. The cross was his plan. The blood being shed for our sins was his plan. Secondly, we understand Jesus has clearly taught already in the Gospel of John that no man can come to him except the Father draw him. So God the Father works in the hearts of sinners and draws us. We can't get saved without the Father drawing us. And of course, we saw that uh, two weeks ago, I guess it was, in our, um, not last week, but the lesson before that, we saw that part of the Holy Spirit's working was to reprove the world in um, John 16 and verse 8, to reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit is in the business of convicting man of sin, of showing us our need, of showing us Jesus Christ. So this is how the, the Father draws us. The Holy Spirit works. <clears throat> you don't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I'm getting saved today. And it starts with your idea. There is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that makes us realize, I'm a sinner. I need Christ. Any person who gets saved is responding to the working of God. And so don't get distracted when it says that the ones you gave me, because literally, first of all, he's having communion with the Father. The two of them are talking. They're having a private conversation, which the disciples were intended to hear. But he's looking at his converts, and specifically his apostles, his 11 that are here with him, because Judas is out, of course, um, on his way. He's heading to the garden as well to... Um, turn Jesus in and betray him to get him arrested. And so here he is with the 11, and Jesus refers to them as those that God had given him. 
So there is the fact that salvation is first of all the work of God. But then there is the other side of it where man must respond to God. Jesus had said very clearly in um, John 3.16, for God so loved the elect. Is that what it said? No, it says God so loved the world. Now there are two levels of love here in the scriptures. And in John 17, we're seeing a deeper love than John 3.16. John 3.16 is this enormous love that would cause God the Father to send God the Son to die on the cross in our place. But then when we get to John chapter 17 and we come to the end, there is this intimate love that God is showing us that his own can know. Those who were saved can know that love in a very special way because they have responded to him. So there is this working. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, that who? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, he's talked about Jesus came to his own, meaning to the human race, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So are these verses that contradict one another? Oh, these are the ones you gave me. No man can come to the Father ex- to me except the Father draw him. The Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin. Is that contrary to whosoever will? It's not contrary. It works together. Now, some would say that, well, the truth of it is, they would say is that God only calls certain people. And I've heard people quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world of the elect. I thought there was a curse on people who added to the Bible. And I mean that, okay? I'm not being facetious there. There is a curse on people who add to the Scriptures. And when you take a Bible verse, and because it doesn't fit your your, um, theology, you start adding words to it to make it fit your theology. I don't know, Pastor Swim, but it seems like to me that that would maybe... um, Call that curse down on yourself? I don't want that curse, so I'm not going to add to it because as I study the Gospel of John, I keep seeing that word world show up. And he's talking about all of humanity. Um, remember in John chapter 4, was it? The woman at the well? After the, um, the men of the city had come out and they started listening to Jesus, what was their confession? Their confession was, this is indeed the Savior of the world, because here they are, half Gentile, half Jewish people, and they realize Jesus came to save us too. He's the Savior of the world. So these are not competing factors. I believe that God, it's, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that he gives every man, woman, boy, and girl an opportunity to receive him. But those who had received him, those who had believed Jesus looks at and says, these are yours. They're the ones that you gave me. So there's the two sides of this here. Let's not spend our focus here. Let's keep going. What does Jesus say? He refers to them as the ones that you gave me. He said, I've given them eternal life. And then he explains what eternal life is in verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. 
So what is eternal life? Oh, eternal life's going to heaven. No, it's more than that. Eternal life is knowing God. The moment a person gets saved, at that moment, they enter eternal life. The moment I got saved when I was five or six years old, I don't remember at this moment, when I was five or six years old, at that moment, I entered into eternal life. I entered into a relationship with God. At 13, that was sin I was starting to deal with, and I was really starting to doubt my salvation. And I started understanding how sinful I was, but how great God's love for me was. Well, when that happened, my faith grew. Now, at the time, I thought I was getting saved. Oh, I never really got saved when I was five because I didn't understand it. Now I understand, and I'm getting saved. Why? I was growing in my knowledge of God, and it was such an overwhelming thing that it was like I'd gotten saved. Well, at 16, I went through a similar thing. Again, struggling with sin, I began to say, well, I must not be saved. And boy, at that point, I really began to understand more deeply what Christ had done for me on the cross. I remember crawling out of my bed one night, laying on my face before God as, um, I don't know, there was a CD, I had a CD playing. I always went to sleep, well, most of the time went to sleep with music playing. And just as I am, without one plea, started playing. I mean, it was just an orchestra. But I started thinking about those words, and I realized not just how sinful I was, like I had realized when I was 13. Now I'm realizing how great his love was. Oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. And I ended up in the floor just worshiping God and just confessing my sin to God. And at that moment, I thought, I think I just got saved. Well, what was happening? My faith was growing. I was coming to know him better. I entered eternal life when I was five years old. But at 13, that grew. My knowledge and understanding of my sinfulness and what God had done for me grew and became greater. Again, at 16, it grew again. And on a regular basis, for every one of us, that should be growing. Our understanding of God, one man said, he said, it's not how much knowledge you have about anything, about God, about the Bible. He said, but it is who you know. This is life eternal, that ye might, that they might know thee, that we would know God. And look what he says about God, the only true God. He is the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So eternal life <clears throat> is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father. Verse 4, he said, I have, oh, here's the word again, glorified thee. What did I say was the primary focus of this first part of the prayer? It was glorification. He wanted the Father to be glorified. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, he could be looking in future tense. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to finish the work. But I think he's literally saying, I have finished my earthly work right now. D. Campbell Morgan pointed out, he said what he had finished here was his earthly work. He had just finished his last major lesson to his disciples. He had finished his miracles, and he said, I finished my earthly work. Well, what was the cross? That was his heavenly work. He was paying for our sins. He was going to um, shed his blood for our sins, and then he would be with the Father in paradise. He was taking care of the sin problem next. 
He's done his earthly ministry. He has glorified his father. Remember there in Cana of Galilee, it said at the end of that account, when he comes to the end after turning the water to wine, he said, and then he began to manifest his glory to his disciples, and they believed. That word had to do with like taking his jacket off so you could see what was hidden under, underneath. He's beginning to, it's like peeling off the layers of an onion. They began to see Jesus more clearly. Yesterday we washed our van. It has been months since we washed our van. I mean, when you live on the middle of a, in the middle of a cow pasture and the cow pasture's muddy, first of all, we couldn't drive it up to the house to wash it. So anyway, it's been dry enough. We could pull it up to the house and we washed it yesterday. And it's amazing how beautiful that van is. I had forgotten. I didn't think it'd ever shine again. And after finishing washing the van with the kids, I went back to my room to study some more. And I sat down and I, I mean, it was in the sunlight and it was sparkling. Like, whoa, it sparkles. Why had it not sparkled before? Well, it was covered up with layers and layers and church children's names written on the back of the vehicle. <laughs> and only one specific church child. And since he's not here, I'll not make fun of him, but his mother's probably listening and she knows who I'm talking about. But when we washed off that layer of dirt, wow, you could see the van underneath it. And I'm not saying Jesus had a layer of dirt on it. The point is, what the disciples saw was a man. But Jesus turned the water into wine and they're like, oh, there's something here. It was like a layer of dirt came off. What? Um, they were seeing through his humanity. They got a little glimpse of his deity. And he feeds the 5,000. Whoa. Who else? We believe. We believe. I thought they said they believed the last chapter. Yep. Then he does another thing. Oh, we now, now we believe. I mean, even we saw last week in John chapter 16, they said, oh, now we believe. Now we really believe. I mean, it just, their faith kept growing and increasing. Why? Because they were seeing more and more and more of Jesus Christ. He said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now he's talking about that glory that he had left in heaven. There was this magnificent glory of heaven, those ivory palaces of heaven that Jesus had left to come to this earth. And he knows he has to go to the cross. He knows he's going to be lifted up. He knows he's going to be, in a way, glorified on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. On the cross, he's going to glorify the Father. Yes, his Father's going to turn his back on him. Yes, there's going to be the tragedy of the cross. But in the tragedy of the cross, there would be the glory of the fact that Jesus was saving the souls of sinful men. But he said, I'm longing for that glory that I shared with you before. I'm looking forward to having that back. Now, verse 6, his prayer begins to change. Now he's not praying for himself anymore. Now he turns the focus to his disciples. He says, I have manifested thy name. I have displayed, I have showed your name. I've revealed your name unto the men which thou gavest me. Again, he's talking about the disciples. Which thou gavest me out of the world. Remember that word world? It shows up over and over and over throughout the Gospel of John. It's kind of a sub-theme in the Gospel of John. 
Father, you've taken these men out of the world and you gave them to me. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now notice in this this first sentence that he begins praying about his disciples, he mentions the word, they have kept thy word. This is going to keep showing up until we get to verse number... um, Verse 17, I think, is really the heart of this part of the prayer. And I think as we look at these verses, we'll see that the primary concern here for his disciples was sanctification. Sanctification, that they be set apart for him. Look what he says. First of all, he mentions the word, they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words, there's words again, which thou gavest me. So what you gave me, I've given them. What you said to me, I said to them. And they have received them. So they had willingly received his words. Now, is that what the world had done? Is that what the religious world had done? Jesus would teach and those Pharisees would get so angry. Why were they getting angry? Well, the Holy Spirit was convicting their hearts. Um, The Holy Spirit was actively involved in the ministry of Jesus. And boy, when Jesus would teach, I mean, it was like daggers in their hearts. But the disciples, Jesus would teach, and they would hear the words, and wow. Yeah, they realized they were sinful. But they received them. There was a difference in the reception there. And he says, and have known surely that I came from thee. This was key. They understood where he came from. I mean, these are fishermen. These are uneducated men. These men have not been to the Bible college at the temple. The guys who went to the Bible college at the temple were so blind and so deaf and so dumb that they couldn't recognize the Messiah when he showed up. And supposedly that's what they had been studying about. They were preparing for the Messiah. You know, they had a degree in... um, They had a bachelor's and master's and doctorate in look for the Messiah. 101, whatever you would call that. And here they were so, quote, prepared that they didn't receive him. But he said, these men, tax collector, fisherman, these men, they received your word. They believed that I came from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. What is Jesus showing here? He's showing the unity he has with the Father. Everything you have is mine. Everything I have is yours. This is going to be really important here once we get to verse 20. The unity of the Father and the Son. That brings me a lot of security of my salvation. And I'm sure it made the disciples feel secure as well as they're walking along to the garden and they're hearing Jesus pray and talk to the Father like this. That I don't just belong to Jesus, I belong to the Father. 
I don't just belong to the Father, I belong to Jesus. And in John chapter 10, he showed that as to help the disciples understand their eternal security, he used that terminology. He said, my father holds you in his hand. Well, he said, I hold you in my hand. He said, my father, which is greater than I, holds you in his hand. And when I understand that I am held by the father and by the son and they are one, what power that gives me in understanding the, the security of my salvation. We belong to him, and specifically here the disciples, they belong to him. And so he says, I'm praying for them, verse 10, uh, sorry, verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. Jesus is on his way out, right? He's going to the cross. He's going to die. He's leaving. He said, but these are in the world. I'm leaving them behind. He says, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And the scripture has already said in the Gospel of John, he was a devil from the beginning. So don't try to tag the fact that, oh, well, Judas Iscariot, he believed, he got saved, and then he fell from grace, and he quit believing, and so, you know, he denied Jesus and went to hell. The scripture said he was a devil from the beginning. He never was a genuine believer, but he put on such a good show, they gave him the money bag and made him the treasurer. He was a good actor. There was not genuine faith there, though. He said, he's the only one I lost because, yeah, he never was with us in the, from the beginning, really. Verse 13, and now come I to thee. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them, oh, here it is again, thy word. And the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray that thou shouldest take them Sorry, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. So let's stop here for just a moment. He says, I've given them your word. The world hates them because they're not of the world. So these were men who had been of the world, but they are saved. God has set them apart. They're set apart from the world for God's service. And so he says, I'm praying for them, not that you would take them out. I'm leaving them. They're going to be alone here. Now, he's already explained to the disciples, it's good for you to, that I leave because when I go away, the Holy Spirit will come. He'll indwell you. He's going to permanently indwell you. He had given them great, positive, very strong teaching about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he said, you're going to do greater works than I did because the Holy Spirit is going to be here with you. But now as he's praying and he's facing this reality with the Father that he is leaving, he says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. He said, but I'm asking that thou wouldest keep them from the evil. Preserve them, protect them from the evil. Now, some say that it should be because it has thee before evil, the evil, that it's talking about Satan, protecting them from Satan. Well, that could actually be an application of this. 
But I don't think he's talking about just protect them from Satan, but protect them from evil. You and I need to realize our enemy, our only enemy is not Satan. Our enemy is our flesh. Our enemy is sin. I like sin, I'll be honest. Man, one of my friends used to have this saying, sin is fun. And that, that was when we would get just really tempted and we just couldn't help ourselves. It was a girl that was a friend of mine. And people like to gossip, right? You see a guy and a girl that are friends, obviously they're together. And what, the first time we said that, we were actually here at North Bell and we were starting to drive away and we realized people were watching us. And so our other friend in the car, we made them duck down. We're like, well, if they're, they're already gossiping, we can see them on the porch. Why don't we just carry this a little further? Duck, and it was my sister. We're like, duck, duck. And so my sister just instantly, she was very enthusiastic into anything at the moment, and she just ducked down in the back. And as we drove away, we're laughing so hard because we realized, boy, the gossip circles are going now. And instantly, together, we both suddenly, out of nowhere, said, sin is fun. Of course, you know, anyway. In my flesh, sin can be fun. And I'm sure it was this way for the disciples because they were human beings too. And the fathers, and Jesus is praying to the Father, protect them from the evil. They are too foolish. They're too easily drawn aside. They're too easily distracted. And this word evil in scriptures can even just simply be hardships. Now, I don't think he's saying protect them from difficult things. Jesus has already told them things are going to be bad. Things are going to be difficult. The world's going to hate you. He's acknowledging right now the world hates them. So protect them from evil. I think he's talking about sin specifically here because of what he says next. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world sanctify them or set them apart. Sanctify them through thy truth. What is truth? He says, thy word is truth. The word of God is truth. And he said, the word of God is what is going to set the disciples apart from the rest of the world. If they're going to be protected from evil, they need the word of God. You and I, if we are going to be set apart, if we're going to be protected from evil, we need the Word of God. When Laura and I go into some of these places in Mississippi and do these Bible clubs, I can remember one of the first times that I ever prayed, verse 15. I had not really deeply thought about verse 15 before. I guess maybe I had meditated on it more than I thought, but we're at a daycare we're leaving on the last day in a neighborhood where there are no good churches to go to. I mean, a town, a whole town. I drove into the town one day, and the Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart and told me about the immorality that was going on in the pulpits of the town. Oh, that was an odd thought. I'm like, I must be just you know, coming up with this thought. Went to the daycare. I was teaching. I'd finished the Bible lesson, went to stand at the back of the room while my teammate was teaching the missionary story. And one of the daycare workers said, Aaron, these kids really need this. She said, there is no church in this town for these kids to go to. She said, because on Saturday nights, and she said what the pastors did. And she said, and then on Sunday mornings, they're behind the pulpit. Thing was, she said word for word what I heard the Holy Spirit say as I drove into town. 
And so we're at that daycare a couple of years later. A whole bunch of them had gotten saved. And we went to leave and we prayed outside of the daycare center. And this is what I prayed. I said, Lord, I don't ask that you take them out of this world, but would you protect them from the evil? I had known what some of the evils were in their community, the evils that the pastors were involved in, the evils that some of their fathers were involved in, because one kid told me in the middle of clubs one day, he's just sitting there looking up at me with almost hate, almost curiosity. You just couldn't quite read it. And finally, he just said, if my daddy saw you, he'd kill you. I guess what I started preaching about all of a sudden, hate. Anyway, um, hating people because the difference of their skin color. But here I was praying for these children, understanding what Jesus was going away with. He says, I'm leaving them. I'm leaving them here. And I'm praying, Father, that you keep them from the evil. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Now, folks, if Jesus needed to set himself apart, if Jesus very purposefully was sanctifying himself, how much more do we need it? But he said, I sanctified, he said, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. It is so important that we are saturated with the word of God. It's the only true truth we have. Society is falling apart. Society is, I mean, when you watch the news, I'm just shocked every single day at things that go on, at things that people that are supposed to be smart say. We need truth. Otherwise, we're going to end up going the popular way. I mean, it's not fun to be the sanctified ones the ones that are set apart, the ones who are different, the oddballs. I had a friend recently go on a vacation to Florida. His church had sent him to St. Augustine, oldest city in America. And when they got there, he said one morning he went out, he loves going to see the sunrise, but his wife doesn't really enjoy that. So she stayed in her bed that morning. And he got up and he went to watch the sunrise. Well, at the place where he went to watch the sunrise, he discovered that he was at a cemetery. So he begins looking at this old cemetery, and it's this, there was a large Catholic cemetery inside the city. But here was the gate to old St. Augustine, and outside the gate was a cemetery. Turns out, it was, he did some research, it was a Huguenot cemetery. The Protestants were not allowed to be buried inside the city. It was a Catholic city. So he went back to the hotel, and he got his daughter, and later that morning, he took his daughter there. And they walked through the cemetery. He said, these are the Huguenots. He said, these are our people. He said, these were the outcasts. They were different. They were the outsiders. He said, it's okay to be different. It's okay to be an outsider. It's okay to be different from the world. He said, be like these people. That, that just brought such a strong visual to me because Christianity used to be part of the in crowd in America. Even in American politics. I mean, in a lot of parts of the country, it was an in thing to say you were a Christian. 
But that is getting to be less and less true every day, especially to be a Bible-believing Christian. We're starting to understand what it means to be outsiders. We're starting to understand what it means when the world truly hates you. We're just beginning to see that. And so Jesus is praying for his disciples that they would be set apart. And he said, this is going to happen through your word. And so then he begins to pray in verse 20 for his church. Let's see what he says here. Neither pray I for these alone, not just for the disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, in John chapter 10 and verse 30, he stated very clearly, the Father and I are one. He's talking about the unity of the Father and the Son, and he wants the believers, all believers, to be unified in him. This is his primary concern with this section of the prayer, is the unification of his body, of the church. Now, is he teaching ecumenicalism here? Is he teaching that all religion should come together and worship together under some flag and some standard? I don't think that's what he's talking about here because every single time that an ecumenical movement gets started, oh, sure, maybe it's started by good people. Maybe they have good doctrine. But before long, there are people who reject the deity of Christ in the midst of this group. There are people who believe in salvation by works instead of by faith. And all kinds of people end up in this group. And what started out so great, all of a sudden, it's, it's just turned into a big social club under the banner of Christianity. This is not true unity. Throwing away the Bible, throwing away biblical doctrine in order to have unity is not unity. That's foolishness. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the baptism of the Spirit. The moment a believer gets saved, and, he, and Paul, Paul goes into really great detail and explains it well later on, and, but he's talking about when we get saved, we become a member of the body of Christ. That's how you and I are unified. We are unified in Christ. The moment we get saved, we become a member of his body. We do not have to put together a group of people or a group of people uh, uh, a body of churches from around the world to make this happen. If you are truly saved, you are a member of the body. He says in verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be what? One, even as we are. What? One. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. That word perfect means complete or perfect in one, literally un, um, perfectly united. You and I can only be perfectly united in Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through an organization. It comes through Jesus Christ. Now, what was going to happen when there was this perfect unity? He said, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved me as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. 
So Jesus had already told the disciples in John chapter 14, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, say it with me, there ye may be also. Jesus has already stated the fact. This is happening where I'm going, you're going to be. But now as he's having this special intimate time with the Father, he puts his eyes on it. He locks his eyes on it. Father, I will. It's my desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. So he wants his disciples. He wants the church, those who would believe, you and I, who came on later because of their witness. He said, I want them to be with me. Now, why does he want us there? That we could what? Behold his glory. We've only had a peak, folks. As you study the book of Revelation and you read about the throne room of heaven, you read about the lamb being crowned, the elders casting down their crowns before his throne, the worship of heaven, I mean, what an awesome, awesome thing. The glory that he has in heaven. But here he's setting his eyes on it, and I think this lines up with what um, the author of Hebrews told us in Hebrews chapter 12, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. I think that's what he's doing right here, is he's setting his eyes on the future glory. Father, I want them to be with me. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. He wanted us to be with him to see his glory. In Philippians chapter 2, we read, we read that he set aside his glory. Verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a, ser of a servant. These disciples had seen the servant. He said, I want them to see my glory. And was made in the likeness of men. They had seen his manliness. He said, I want them to see my glory. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. They saw the humble Jesus. He said, I want them to see my glory. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The disciples were about to witness the most gruesome death they had ever seen. And he said, I want them to see my glory. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He said, Father, I want them to see my glory. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. How is Christ going to be in us? How is his love going to abound in us? How is this going to happen? Anybody remember? I said that in these chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, you cannot separate any of this from the work of who? 
Holy Spirit. Because he says the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's already told them this. And this is what he's talking about here. He's thinking of this time that the, he is going to be in his disciples. His love, the love of the Father is going to be in them. It's going to be manifest in them. It's going to be manifest in them greatly. So as Jesus prays, first of all, he prays for himself. I think this is a good pattern for us. When we pray, we need to start out by praying for ourselves. Then he prayed for his disciples. He prayed for those closest to him. And then he prays for his church. He prays for us that we would be unified, that his father would be glorified, his disciples would be sanctified, and you and I would be unified in him. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this intimate conversation that you allowed us to have a peek into. I thank you that the disciples heard this conversation. And Lord, I thank you for um, thinking of us as you were headed to the cross. Thank you for praying for us. And we rejoice that as we looked at last week, you're now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us and for dying on the cross for our sins. And we thank you for your work of interceding, of praying for us, and taking on our part before the Father. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you drew us, that your Holy Spirit convicted us, and that we can be part of your family, part of your body. Lord, I just pray that you would help us, Lord, to walk in your love and in your truth, in your word, and that we would be each one unified as we are in the Spirit and the Spirit in us. Lord, we thank you for this unity that we have with the Godhead because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, I pray that you'd bless Brother Will as he preaches this morning, that you would speak to us through your truth, and um, Lord, you'd help us to apply the things that we've seen this morning in your word to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.